Looking for your next TV show or movie to binge? Well, buckle up, grab the remote, and settle into your couch for this special edition of Crossing the Streams. We're here to help you tune in and get the most out of those 50 monthly streaming channels you're currently paying for. So without any further ado, here's your host of Crossing the Streams, Jeff Dwoskin. It is I, Jeff Dwoskin, host of Classic Conversations and Crossing the Streams. What is Crossing the Streams? It's where we answer the universal question, what should I be binging next? I just finished something, and now I gotta watch something else. Crossing the Streams is here. We got your back. Tons of amazing streaming, binging recommendations for you. These bonus episodes are segments from our live show, which is every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join us live on our YouTube channel. We have over 90 hours of TV binge-watching suggestions. These are segments from those shows. So if you don't have time to do that, you just sit here and we put it right into your ears for you. Today, we have segments from episode 40, 71, and 84, Turning Point 911 and The War on Terror, a great documentary, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Amber Combery Finch. I'm pretty sure I said that wrong. And from episode 84, Prey, the Hulu original movie. As a matter of fact, let's kick off with Prey. This is brought to us by frequent guests to the show, Tony Berardo and Zach Wiseman. Take it away, guys. Patient going, because we're going to go to Prey, which is a new movie on Hulu, Hulu, with our friend Tony B. <laughs> Explain to everyone what this movie is. Before. Yeah, so let me tell you this. First off, if you don't know what this is about, that's okay. That's how good of a origin story this is. You know, I dragged my... I've seen every Predator movie from the OG with Schwarzenegger to the ridiculous remakes that is Alien vs. Predator and Requiem and all that bullshit that they did. And that was just kind of a studio trying to take advantage of a name, right? Like they do with most movies. But this I, I thought was... If I could be so bold, I think this might be one of my favorite movies in the past two years, year, like one of my favorite, like top five. It's overall, um, again, just a great origin story that doesn't waste time on an origin story, if that makes sense. If you, if you don't know anything about Predator, it's this massive alien creature that usually goes to planets and has kind of a um, orientation, so to speak, with the rest of the uh, Covenant. They drop off this predator to hunt and to find the most dangerous primal predator on that planet. And its job is to take down that predator. So essentially the predator is to be the top dog of that planet. And that is like your initiation into this alien. Usually like it's portrayed like in comics and things like that. The predator is a teenager essentially in the alien world to get dropped off very similar how they did in Roman times where they would take a, a Roman child, leave him out alone. And if he comes back to the empire that he's, you know, he's a man now and he could take over the the kingdom one day. That's a kind of like in a nutshell what the Predator is. But when you first watch it, it this one's actually a true origin story. It's placed, I think, in like 1700 where uh, Comanches and uh, I forget the other tribes. But, you know, this is way back in the day, you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago, which the only criticism I have of this movie is I feel like they spoke really good English for being Comanches. But yeah. 
Go, go ahead, Zach. Did... I don't know if you know this, but the when he pit when the director pitched this, he pitched it to be completely in Comanche. So he hired people that spoke straight Comanche, and right. it was supposed to be that way. And Hulu said no. I, I did read that, and I, I thought that was kind of bullshit because I'm like, yeah. why would Hulu? Because I feel like the blowback would be even worse. Which surprisingly, I haven't seen any blowback where people are like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I've been people are probably like, well, I hate reading subtitles, so I get it. That's it. Yeah. Um, but I thought overall they did a very good job in keeping with the Comanche culture, if you know anything about it. And again, the whole idea of in parallel, which it's kind of underlining in the movie, which I think is pretty genius without mentioning it, is they're kind of like the Predator and the Comanche warrior, which is played by Amber Minehunter, who she's been in Legion and stuff like that. But they're kind of parallel characters in the sense of like they're trying to prove themselves which is interesting, but they never mention it in the story because she is like the only woman in the tribe that is a really good tracker, but no one takes her seriously. No one wants to bring her along on these hunts. So she's kind of in her own way trying to prove herself. And then long story short, spoiler alert, she ends up going head to head with the predator and some wicked stuff happens along the way. So overall, I thought that character buildup was great, but I really appreciated how they didn't mention predator's origin story it starts off kind of the predator gets dropped on this planet you see him a lot of the invisibility cloak pretty much the entire movie and there's this massive reveal where you think he's going to be like this animatronic weird looking like you've seen in the other predator movies in the past decade where it's very cheesy looking but no this is like he looks like a teenage predator like he's he's fit he's he knows the he knows how to track. He's almost kind of like a Comanche in the Predator world. It's just very well done in terms of that because you appreciate that origin story, but also you know that he's there to hunt. He's taken down animals left and right, but they don't mention it. You understand? They don't talk about that. But if you don't know anything about Predator, you get it, though, from the storytelling. And my wife has never seen a Predator movie or an alien movie, which we're working on working her up to that. She's got to watch Godfather and Goodfellas and stuff first. That's top priority. But she she hasn't seen Predator at all. And she walked out of this movie like, that's a really great movie. Like she had no other thoughts except for, I enjoyed that. I, I love the character build up. There was, uh, there was sadness. There was intrigue. There was curiosity. Really good action scenes. I think there could have been a little bit more, but that's the great thing I think about an origin story is you get the build up a little bit with some great action. And then I think they already greenlit a sequel. And I'm sure there's going to be, you know, out of 90 minutes, there's going to be 60 minutes of action scenes in the sequels. So overall, I mean, I think it was great. I think you got a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, which they're usually wrong on a lot about stuff, but I think they're pretty on point. And it's got 88% on Google reviews. So uh, overall, just great movie. I mean, highly recommend if you got Hulu, I definitely would watch it for sure. Now, if you're if you're on Hulu, you can switch the language to be in Comanche. And that was the very first time I've ever seen this. So I actually watched oh. Prey twice because I watched it the, the first time as is. And halfway through, I, I don't know how I got to this, but I'm like, oh, you can put it on Comanche. So when I watched it a second time in Comanche, I will say it's a, it's a better movie because it has like a cooler like foreign yeah. vibe to it. So like yeah. you don't know the Comanches and you also don't know the Predator. And I think that was very, very clever that they did that. And I agree with you. Uh, you know, if, if you do know the, the original Predator, it does a really interesting thing. When you saw the original Predator, it's like, wait, what are these gorilla people doing like in the woods? Why are they skinning people? And then the alien, where this is the same thing where like you, you get this thing. It's like, oh, there's these French people that are just doing some dumb shit here. And you're like, okay, cool. Now I get it. And then it's like the Predator and he is primal and like the bone 
bones. And I, for the first time, I, I realized like the sound design of this movie is so beautiful. Like the sound that like when that hatchet hits like any piece of wood or anything, I, I, I've never been so like enthralled by the sound of a movie. But I will say, if you've seen this movie, try watching it again in Comanche and, and see if you like it a little better. Because I thought it was very, very cool. That's interesting. I didn't even know they yeah. did it. That's incredible. And you know, I just on the point of language barriers and stuff, you know, the, the French tribe, again, I thought that was really interesting how they did because they they were having conversations for two minutes mm-hmm. and there was no subtitles, but you understood through context and storytelling and their mannerisms, uh, what it was. And it yeah, was, yeah. again, it was very, there's the little details, like you said, with the sound and stuff, like the hatchet, like, yeah, like if you watch this thing on a surround sound, woo, and if you watch the very, very end, like during the credits, there's like this cave painting and it yes. shows the aliens coming back in. So it's like, all right, they're definitely setting this up for a sequel. So yeah. I- I'm super excited. I, I thought it was Really, really cool and, and well-paced movie. And by the way, let's end it with this. It was on Hulu and it wasn't in the theaters at all. And this was a great good movie. Yeah. Like that's Hulu, okay? This is not HBO Max. I get it. But I mean, Hulu, they came strong. They come strong with a lot of stuff, but original content, yeah. it's a movie. It's very rare. And I think and they knocked out of the park with this one. And so. there, there are, I mean, you could tell where the budget lacks a little bit. Like some of the animals, the CGI's like, oh, that looks a little cartoony. Yeah. But overall, beautiful story. Well, well, well done. All right, that was Prey from episode 84 of Crossing the Streams. Thank you, Tony and Zach. Now we're going to go way back to episode 40 with Turning Point 911 and the War on Terror. Ron Alipit is going to take us through this documentary. Take it away, Ron. To lighten things up here and uh, talk about um, <laughs> Turning Point, point 911 oh. and the War on Terror. Yeah, this well, he casts a long shadow. I, I thought it was appropriate given this week, and I, I'm sorry to end on on a dark note, you guys, because this it is it is a dark chapter that's reflected on Netflix, and Netflix continues to do a great job with with docu series and, and documentaries in, in general, and uh, and here we are again, this one, uh, Turning Point 911 and the War on Terror. It's a five part uh, docu series directed by uh, Brian Knappenberger, who's a pretty well uh, known documentarian. It's an examination of 9/11, and listen, I, there are some fantastic 9-11 documentaries out there. So I am not at all suggesting that this is in in any way a better replacement for some of the great 9-11 docuseries that have been out there, like the Nat Geo, uh, and there was a, a Frontline uh, version. And there's there's been some great documentaries out about the events of 9-11. But that's not what this is. What I really think is powerful about this it is a documentary that focuses more on the lead up and the conditions that created 9-11 and the moment that America changed, not be- just because of the attacks. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that up until 9-11, the focus was uh, the, the residual Cold War that existed between us and, and Russia and the, and the superpower race and and the, the economic race that was going on and American materialism that was just booming through the 80s and 90s. And 9-11 changed the American um, system, uh, particularly uh, uh, of how we view threats, uh, into from what went, you know, from a Cold War mentality to now a uh, fundamentalist uh, terrorism uh, mentality, and that represented an absolute um, shock to the system for the United States defense mechanism, but also um, a shift uh, to the to the political world about of how we ascertain threats and and respond to them. In, in a modern world post 9-11. That's what this documentary focuses on. And I will tell you, uh, the five parts, the first two uh, focus specifically 
on how poorly we miscalculated the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and the arming of the Mujahideen and the and the rebels that Osama bin Laden helped to fund and to, to build a coalition against, which formed the base for al-Qaeda. And we so poorly miscalculated religious fundamentalism versus nationalism. America is so set on nationalism where we are America, where they are Russia. We believe that that's the race. And the truth is the Islamic extremism and fundamentalism, uh, that's a completely different game that they're playing than, than that we were prepared for, that we didn't understand, that we miscalculated. And frankly, right under our noses allowed Osama bin Laden and his organization and folks that were right here in the United States to exist and thrive and build and uh, create the threat that right until the very end, right up to 9-11, we had underestimated. I will tell you just having lived through 9-11, as we all have at the time uh, as an American, I, I can't say that I ever... Like I wasn't seeing news flashes on NBC News or whatever saying, hey, we're about to be attacked. Or we knew about the the uh, extremism or excuse me, the attacks in you know Kenya and T- Tanzania and the attack on the USS Cole. But those were someplace else. We never considered that attack on the homeland, right? It, it never crossed any of our minds. And it was so bold and so complicated and well-designed. And you hate saying that about about a terror group, but uh, but it it really was. And so that's what's interesting about this documentary is that it's not a very good documentary when it comes to the the events of 9/11 itself. But it is an excellent documentary about talking about the conditions left by the United States in Afghanistan and other places that allowed Al Qaeda to build into what it became. Uh, frankly. Uh, fundamentalism everywhere in the, in the world that still exists today. And that's that's the turning point for the United States. And it's probably more true today than it ever has been. So uh, it, it's it's worthwhile. It, it's, it's good. I'm sold. I'm sold. I want to watch it. Do they talk about the the power vacuum that's left in Iraq after the first, you know, 100% the they, they, war and the conditions upon which that, okay. Uh, you know, so they I, talk very specifically about how Osama bin Laden capitalized on the apparent the imperialist view of us going into, you know, traditional Islamic lands like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait uh, in response to Sa- Saddam Hussein. I mean, it's it's a worst case scenario. Saddam Hussein yeah. invading Kuwait was exactly what Osama bin Laden and other fundamentalists needed to be able to point a finger at the the U.S. and coalition forces to be able to say, look, this is what we're talking about. Western forces in Islamic lands subjugating us and taking our resources. And that's 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 at the core of it. So it, I've it, seen I've seen so much yeah. footage and we've seen so many documentaries in so many different ways and perspectives and angles about 9-11 since the attacks. And we're coming up on the 30th anniversary as, as yeah, uh, tw- the 20th anniversary. Yeah, excuse me. 20th, yeah. It leaves a mark every time that you watch those events. I don't think any American that was alive at that time or of a certain age at that time is ever going to forget because we are emotionally jarred right back to it every time we see those planes hit that tower or every time we see Rudy Giuliani standing with a megaphone or George Bush, you know, George Bush up there. Whatever the image is for you in your own head that really got to you on that particular day or those events. But I find this super fascinating because I think that if we don't learn from the past, we are doomed to repeat the same events. I think it was a shock to the system. Even after the World Trade Center was bombed once by a similar fundamentalist organization, we still missed all of the warning signs for the second larger attack. They came to finish the job, 
right? And we missed all of the warning signs. It is interesting because they they had behind the scenes footage from the White House. And oh, interesting side note: when nine eleven happened, they didn't know where to take President Bush. Like they talk about that, like the, on the day of, like they had nowhere to take him. They took him to Nebraska. They took him to like they they knocked him around different Air Force bases until they decided Washington was was uh, safe. Didn't he um, stay in the air for for six or seven hours? He, he did. Uh, after he, he, left he Florida. Was in the, yeah. He was in the air for quite a bit. So that was interesting. But, you know, another interesting thing was they were talking about something like this. It, it unifies the country. It unified the, the Congress, which is already a very fractured place to be. But but here we are. You know, we're Americans. We all – no one's Republican or Democrat anymore. But what became a fight was – and I remember this partly – was how much power to give President Bush unilaterally. How much war power do you give a guy to attack? And and now who do you attack? Like because this was a this is a terrorist group. Like so you know they they of course went after the you know the Taliban and and those who harbored and you know abetted. But but it became a bigger issue of this is going to come off as the West attacking Islam, and they knew that. So there was politics involved with this. And and listen, not to get into any politics here on this on this uh, podcast, but for better or for worse, Maxine Waters. Uh, was the only person in Congress to say, I'm against giving unmeasured uh, powers to President Bush to attack whoever he wants. And that was an interesting thing. She, she It took a lot of courage. She got a lot of death threats for that. And it turned out, you know, what? You know, she might have been right. <laughs> you know, it's it, depending yeah. on your view on it. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, let's, it's, let's save some for the people so they can watch yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But please uh, check it, check it out. Not for it's not for the, it's attack documentary aspects of it, but more about uh, how it uh, built into it. Enjoy it. All right, Ron, thank you so much for that thoughtful review of Turning Point. Up next from episode 71, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Amber Combrey Finch. Sal D'Amelio is going to take us through this one. Take it away, Sal. Let's see what you do now, Sal. Let's talk about, I need to know why you chose this. Let's <coughs> talk about White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Amber Combrey. Amber <laughs> This should be a show is getting words in front of Jeff. This is uh, (laughs) this is a big moment on crossing the streams. Jeff, get the tomato sauce jars ready. (laughs) Never been done on crossing the streams. I'm making a I'm making my my review final before I do the review. And this is why I'm giving it five tomato sauce jars right now. And the only reason I'm doing this is because every single person in the United States needs to watch this documentary. And here's why. <laughs> it's not about Abercrombie and Fish. Uh-huh. Abercrombie and Fitch is just a widget in this story. Uh-huh. Uh, I hope Ron agrees with me. This this is a crystal ball. This documentary is a crystal ball into what we are experiencing now in our t- today's society. With our social media, with racism, with diversity, with with divisiveness, everything. This documentary has that but in the night it was in the 90s and it's just it's just all there let me explain so Abercrombie and Fitch is a uh it's a obviously a clothing store it started in 1892 with literally two guys named Abercrombie and Fitch and then uh through the the 20s and all that it was it was just an outdoorsman type of brand it was like almost like today's Gabella's Actually, the the first spokesperson for this brand was Theodore Roosevelt, the president, uh, which is hysterical because wow. of what it became. I'm actually trying to write a bit about this freaking thing uh, right now. But uh, 
So anyway, that's how it was. It was just a outfitters, uh, fishing rods and that sort of thing. And then it, it was bought and sold. And I, I don't want to get into all that. But then in, in the early 90s, it was purchased or, or in 78, it was purchased by a company called The Limited, which which mm. got into more of retail department stores. And that's when a guy by the name of Mike Jeffries took it over and made it that Abercrombie & Fitch that we all know and a lot of people are probably watching know. And it just was based on sex. It was based on, obviously, guys with their shirts off and guys with their shirts off working at the at the places. This Mike Jeffries actually was a genius. He knew how to make this about wearing this to be to be cool and uh, he did it by putting these hot models in the stores the stores were crazy i don't know if you remember going in the mall i i literally i don't know sal i never went in those stores. i did i did one i did too (laughs) i actually went in there and spent about 30 seconds in there because when i asked the the sales or one of those guys with their shirts off i said do you have a 44 long uh, <laughs> one of your jeans you know, the guy looked at me like what are you crazy uh, <laughs> but if you remember the stores in the mall they had shutters on them yeah, yeah. The nightclub well that that was all done on purpose it's an interesting company uh how they became so big and they were they they were big and and i know some of my co-workers here on the podcast know what it is to work for a company where your sales are just through the roof every month. I worked for a company that our sales were good. And when sales are good, the, the sales people for that company reap the benefits. And Abercrombie Fitch did it right. They they almost did it. They are probably the first ones to do what like companies in Silicon Valley are doing now. It's literally their headquarters is called a campus. And they're from somewhere in Ohio, near Columbus, Ohio is where they're headquartered, New Albany. Literally, they showed their offices in the 90s and good footage on here of just these designers and people that worked for the company just partying all night. They would literally stay on campus where their headquarters and just think of stuff to make. And uh, guys were going out uh, in recruiting models for their stores, recruiting ad people. It was so it was so sexist. You can't get you can't get away with the, the kind of things that this company did in the 90s. And they just were getting bigger and bigger. And then the first the first little bit of cancel culture happened in about, uh, I think it was 2003 Mm. when they started making these crazy, I don't know if you remember, they used to make like these crazy shirts with crazy sayings on them. They were so, so racist. I mean, using Asian terms of one of, I, I'm just repeating what was on the documentary, but one of the ones that got this Asian blogger to go nuts. And that's how it first kind of the first cancel culture happened. Uh, one of the shirts they made, and it was one of their best sellers. It, it was just, just you know, again, Asian demographics or Asian people on the shirt. And it just said, it was like a stupid thing about if Asian people had a, a, a laundry mat called two Wongs won't make it, or two Wongs will make it white. That was the, they had those on shirts. <laughs> so bad. And it was, so bad. it was just unbelievable. Can you imagine? Out of like, yeah. Oh and then God. one blogger. I have one of those t-shirts. <laughs> and one blogger started it. And then, you know, when the floodgates opened and that's what I'm saying, it was like the early signs of the cancel culture, early signs of having more diversity in our commercials and, and, and all that. So anyway, it shows all that. It shows the success of the company. And then it shows the kind of the demise of the company. Actually, it's still, uh, it's still, it's still going on today. It's a smaller company now, but they just kind of cater to older people. And obviously they cleaned up their, um, their profile and it took years to do that, but they're not as big as they used to be. I don't know. I probably skipped over a lot of stuff, but uh, Ron, if you want to put your input, but yeah, yeah. Well, the malls too, that was, sorry, I want to cut you over, but malls were huge in their success because 
again, there was no internet. Now we just go to Instagram to see styles and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But we were going to malls and stuff. And that's where Abercrombie and Fitch became so huge because it was such an event for 14 year old girls to go to the mall and shop at Abercrombie and Fitch. And anyway, Ron, I'd love to hear your input. It was, I think it was amazing. I think it was really something everybody should watch. It's a super interesting documentary. I, there's, there's no doubt. And you see it through the lens of today's standards and the, the whole, you know, all of the social consciousness and the Me Too movement and all these things that, yes. that are out there that you think that could, how could that have been possible? But it wasn't that long ago that it actually mm. was possible. They talked a lot about, you know, whether they said it or not, what they were selling was exclusivity. Correct. Like they want, right. they yep. wanted you to feel like you were being, you were part of something that was exclusive. And they even went so far as talking about how the, the, the people that worked in these retail establishments, they didn't care if they sold or not. They didn't care what their numbers were. They only wanted them to be hot. And the monthly reviews were not sales tallies, but were the managers required to list all of the, all the employees and basically ranking them on how hot they are. Correct. Just, <laughs> um, just crazy. Right? Crazy stuff that you and, and that's how they decided whether to keep people or not. And there were no people of color. And they profiled one of this young lady, beautiful, beautiful African American girl, who the only shifts they would give her were like after hours to to clean up the store when nobody was there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, the graveyard up, shift stripper. Yeah. <laughs> right. She ended up being part uh, of the lawsuit that got you guys yeah. are making it sound bad but let me say when i worked there (laughs) (laughs) when i was one of those hot models uh, making my way i was recruited from tape world and (laughs) 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 yeah i so i remember so first off i remember very well the two wongs make a uh will make a white scandal i remember that scandal very well but i remember before that scandal, they got in a lot of trouble with one of their catalogs. One one of their catalogs. That's right. I remember completely that. Completely sexualized children. That's yeah. what it was. That's what well, it was. Yeah. And, yeah, they, and yeah, it's yeah, funny. They, they didn't talk about that in the documentary. Glazed over it just a little bit because they talked about the catalog, but it was very very quickly they got in a lot of trouble for that catalog and and i remember they and they talked a lot about that photographer whose name sally i'm, bl- I'm blanking on there was this one photographer that did all of their catalog work yes. for like a decade and he was famous but also a famous like basically they profiled him as like a pedophile and he would put these kids in just really tough situations and you know and essentially would they still around they didn't get put out of business well they're still around they're run by different people mike jeffries left i mean he and and again this is this is when you couldn't come out of the closet back then but he was a a guy that was married but he was you know obviously gay just in the closet and they actually him and this i forgot the other guy's name Mm. but actually hit on a lot of the uh a lot of the models and um yeah. I remember they had the one model on there. They they kind of talked to a lot of people that worked at the company or yeah. models. And this one model was like, yeah, Jeffrey's wanted me to come to his hotel suite and, you know, just to go over some stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. I, I, you know, I'm just, I think I'm just going to go to my own room. And he's just like, no, no, you need to come to my room and I need to try something on you and blah, blah, blah. He's just like, no, no, I think I'm just going to stay. And the next day he's fired. I mean, the guy just got fired. Yeah. The next day. He's yeah. like, oh, your services won't be needed. No reason, no nothing. He was one of the guys that was involved in the lawsuit. So real interesting documentary. I, yeah. I highly recommend Again, yeah, Stanley, can I just say one more thing? They, they yeah. were talking about uh, one of the featured writers who were, was writing exposés about Abercrombie, I think for the New Yorker <laughs> magazine. She was talking about there's a concept that 
you can't burn too hot. Yeah, if you if you mm-hmm. burn white hot, you'll net you, you, it's not sustainable, right? Cool. And the whole concept of the exclusivity, they they were talking about how that's that that's just not sustainable. You can't it burns white hot and then you die, right? And I kept thinking about it through the lens of social media and Facebook because if you guys saw the social network and, and read about mm-hmm. the founding of Facebook, that was also built on exclusivity, designed to yeah to create exclusivity amongst you and your friends and the networks of people and the fire that you're connected well. to. Yeah, I don't and know. So, who, I forgot which guy it was. Uh, I know we're running out of time here. No, you're, yeah, fine, guy, you're fine. One guy, uh, I, I think he was like a photographer. He said, the moment I knew, it was almost like that Steve Martin quote when he said there was one seat in the back, you know? Yep. It was almost that quote. Mm-hmm. The guy said, I knew we were going to go downhill when forever we were always we were always regarded as the cool the cool kid close mm. but in one of the toby Maguire spider-mans they had a guy like the you guys know that movie more than me but the the guy that beat up people the bully he was wearing abercrombie and fitch throughout the whole movie <laughs> that's, and that right. goes, that's when i knew we were going to go downhill because the bully was wearing our clothes not the oh. And I thought it was when they started selling 44 longs. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that's what we call a call bar. Uh, bingo, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sal says definitely check out that documentary. You got that. You got Bray. You got Turning Point 911. So much. Don't want to keep you. Go grab that favorite spot of yours on the couch. Secure the remote. Cross your own streams. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Crossing the Streams. Visit us on YouTube for full episodes. And catch us live every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Now turn this off and go watch some TV. And don't forget to tell your family you'll be busy for a while.